You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Welcome to the Australian Finance Podcast. I'm Kate Campbell. And I'm Owen Rusk. And we're here to give you the tools and knowledge to invest both your time and money better. If you're new, feel free to jump in with our Starter Pack series that aired in early 2022 or our Shares or ETF mini series. We've got plenty to share with you in today's episode, but if you want to catch us on socials, head to Rusk Australia on Insta and Twitter. I'm also found at Kate Campbell AUS on Insta. And I'm Owen Rusk AU on Insta. Just beware of the fake accounts. We'll never DM you about trading strategies or crypto. And if it sounds a bit weird, it's probably not us. And just one final heads up before we get into the show. This podcast contains general financial information only. Kate Campbell, welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. It is wonderful to be here once again, Owen. Yes. Today, we're talking about investing, which is a bit of fun. I always like to talk about investing. One of your favorite topics. One of my favorite alongside investing and other finance things. But what is specifically are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the qualities of great investors. And many of us want to be a good investor. Maybe our aim isn't as quite as high as a great investor. I think I'd rather just be a good investor. But I was reading an article and then a very long paper over the summer written by two experts in the finance world. And it was outlining... 10 qualities. One was the long paper by Michael Malbison, who is quite a well-known investor in the US. And he wrote this very long paper, I think it was over 20 pages, about these 10 qualities. And then another great investor by the name Vishal Kandwal, who I've been reading his blog and following him on Twitter for a very long time now, he wrote a summarized article of these 10 qualities. And it really interests me. It was something I read on the train while I was going from London to Edinburgh. And so I thought I'd bring this to Owen, bring these 10 points to him and see what he has to say. So this full credit to Michael for for writing this. It was a really good and interesting piece. Some a few of the things went over my head, but we've tried to make it really relevant for you today. We'll outline each of the, the 10 qualities. Owen will uh, say what that means in 
our lingo, and then we'll have a few action points or resources so you can actually learn a bit more about each one. Yeah, sure. And this is great fun. But what I would say is that this is more skewed, like we'll try and make it as relatable as possible. It's probably more skewed to some people that are really curious about companies and about share investing. It applies to ETFs and all that sort of stuff too, but this will give you a real good insight into kind of the things you need to understand, at least the basic level, if you want to go down that path of being a really good investor. Yeah, and we know some of our listeners are very interested in building an individual share portfolio, maybe in addition to their ETF portfolio. And so I think this is worth looking at. And something uh, when I was reading about Michael, because I was doing a little bit of due diligence on his background, he's the head of conciliant research at Counterpoint Global at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. He's written multiple books. And when I looked at, because I did not know what conciliant means, so I looked that up. And uh, according to the dictionary, consilience is linking together of principles from different disciplines, especially when forming a comprehensive theory. And so he brings in lots of different ideas together, but it's an interesting word. He's one of the world's foremost thinkers on investing. There's no doubt about that. He appears on a lot of the really good podcasts from the United States, including the Invest Like the Best podcast. He's one of the great guests that has appeared there. And yeah, fantastic investor. One of those ones that are like kind of, I don't know, in the top 10 in the world, like that kind of regard. So, yeah, it's going to be a bit of fun. And I know some of the books he's written that um, some of the analysts that we've worked with in the past have read and really enjoyed. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you basically get, it's we say consilient, you get all of those things, like all of that kind of worldly wisdom brought down into one, a professor at Columbia. That's where the, the greats come from, right? That's where Warren Buffett studied. So, you know, it's no small feat. So, I mean, we, it'll be borne out in these 10 things. I mean, the, the 10 things... They go from like a very basic understanding to a very in-depth level of knowledge around these topics. So we'll kind of give them lip service, but there's like a whole, I guess, universe within each of these 10 things. Yeah. And I think if this is just a springboard, if this stuff really interests you, I'd really recommend his books, reading the full paper. I'm sure he's done, as you mentioned, many podcasts and lectures that'll be on YouTube. So it's really like if this stuff interests you, there's plenty of resources and we'll get you started in the show notes. Well, the very first quality of a great investor's Owen is being numerate and understanding accounting and numbers and the language of business. Now, we often say that you don't have to really be good at numbers or be good at math to invest, but in this case... It's number one. Yeah, I mean, being numerate, I mean, this could mean any number of different things. So, I mean, there's a number of notes here, but I would just say that uh, you need to understand the basics. My old kind of mentor at The Motley Fool, Scott Phillips, who you may know, he's been on this show once before, he would always say to me, I was like, oh, you know, should I go and study the Chartered Financial Analyst exam, which is a CFA, it's a really hard exam, or should I do this master's degree or that? And he's like, to be honest, you just need some basic understanding of accounting. And it's not like a sexy thing, but um, you just need to understand some basics. So it doesn't take that long to understand how financial statements live together. In a practical sense, like you can just go and watch a few YouTube videos to get a basic understanding. But what I would say, like there's a comment here, like there are rarely complicated calculations, but a feel for figures, percentages, and probabilities is essential. And I think the more complicated you make your investing, obviously, the more the better your understanding. But like, for example, I come across a lot of investors now having done hundreds of interviews, but I come across a lot of investors who really kind of like pick over an accounting standard change and how that accounting standard is interpreted interpreted in the kind of depreciation. So like if that would mean that like there's like a tiny little way that the accountant at the company has thought about something and why I'm 
they may or may not be consistent or whatever. And at the end of the day, over the course of your career, I'm yet to meet an investor who genuinely believes that that is the single best use of their time over their full career, like studying that type of thing. Most of the really good investors that I come across, they understand the numbers. Yes, you need to know the rules of the game before you can play it. But for the most part, they seem to just get a few big calls right and they're not stuck in the weeds. Like Warren Buffett says, he's made billions of tens of billions of dollars in investments and he's only met the company CEO the day before. And that's not because he's like like a quantum computing genius in his head. It's just simply because he's like figured out what matters. And I think the more time that goes on, sure, you need to understand accounting, but the bigger picture is all the other stuff, which we'll get to. Yeah, and I think it's not too complicated if you spend five to 10 hours to have a really basic understanding of how to read an annual report because yeah. during um, COVID and all the lockdowns, I was sort of frustrated. I could read the rest of the annual report, but when it came to the financial tables in there, I was a bit lost. Like I kind of got the gist of what the words would mean, but it didn't make that much sense. Like I couldn't form a picture in my mind of what was going on. And so I spent about 10 hours. I've probably forgotten it by now um, after (laughs) holidays and a busy... We should sit down and go over that and we should even do it in a video. I can explain how they all come together. But um, reality is like if you just think about what it would take to run a business, that's the level of numbers you'd need to understand. So... How many coffees did you sell? How much does it cost for milk? How much does it cost for coffee beans? What's the delivery charge? How much can you charge for to customers? You know, that's the basic math that runs a business. It's not like, you know, how do you calculate this probability or that thing to the third decimal place? It's really that stuff doesn't matter. If it did, then all investors would be out of a job. There'd be no point owning shares because computers would do it. And reality is they don't. They're not that good at it. So I just think there's a lot more to it, but definitely the basics is important. Yeah. So whether that's on Udemy, um, a lot of, uh, I know the Victorian government is doing um, some funded TAFE courses in accounting and that kind of thing at the moment. Might be in other states, books, YouTube, if you want to learn some of the basics of accounting. Yeah, there's a great YouTube channel called uh, by Ely Gresh, I think her name is. I think she's like a professor of accounting or something. She just has this YouTube channel. And it's just you know, all the basics. Like it's really straightforward. Even for someone like me, when I had done my study, I still didn't quite understand some of the concepts around accounting. She was really good and she's free and it's all on YouTube. And Khan Academy. Khan Academy is one of the best. He's the next, people don't know, like the founder of the Khan Academy. He was actually a hedge fund analyst before he started Khan Academy. All right. The second quality is to understand value. Yeah, so this, the quote from Safal here is, successful investing requires an estimate of intrinsic value of the business. Without it, any hope for consistent success as an investor is just that, hope. So, figuring out what the business is worth. Yeah, yeah, what is the business worth, right? Now, if you take number one and number two, so number one is understand the numbers, and then number two is basically just saying, well, you understand the numbers, now what could the numbers be? And that's how you determine the value of a business. So when you do a valuation of anything, you're not saying, well, I can just add up all the stuff that's on the balance sheet and there, presto, there's my valuation. What you say is, okay, here's the business today, but what's it going to be worth in one year, two years or three years or 10 years? And the thing that happens is the further you look out, the more difficult it is to like orders of magnitude. I think there was a Ashworth Demarandon set, came out with this study based on analyst forecasts And I think he said that if it was like two or three years out, it could be wrong, two or three years out, there's basically a one in a million chance that they're correct. (laughs) 
Like getting the exact numbers the, Getting right. the exact numbers correct. Yeah. So what we say, and it's because the way we value companies in investing is we tend to use things that, that are very sensitive. So like the best analogy I've heard of is like the Hubble telescope. If you move the Hubble telescope one millimeter, you're looking at a different galaxy. And that's basically what happens with our mathematical formulas. We basically say, okay, this company is going to be worth X, Y, Z in year 10. And then if we change one decimal place, it goes to like 10 times or 10 times less that, right? And so you have this situation where the models and the way we do things is very uncertain. But if we go back to the basics of what we're trying to do when we are valuing a business, is we're trying to say, how much cash flow is this company capable of generating in the future? That's basically it. And we just add up that cash flow. That's the value today. Mm. And any change, whether it's something like COVID, people shifting out of that industry because they want to go somewhere else, losing a key member of staff, like anything like that, just one thing happening can change your forecast completely. Absolutely. So we talk about, like when I, I spent almost my entire 20s studying this stuff, Kate, and now I teach it. And the thing that happens is a lot of us think it's like this mystical art where there's like, there's one true answer. So BHP shares, oh, it's worth exactly this. And only the people that know the valuation know this, right? But if you go onto like any of the websites where it shows you like analyst valuations, you'll see that they're all different. So if there's only one answer, how can they all, and they're all experts, how can they all be different? And because that's because investing is more of an art form. Because like you said, if COVID hits, well, what impact does that have on Woolies? Imagine if in 2019, you're like, all right, guys, you walk, you're an analyst and you walk into the big meeting with all the other analysts and you go, all right, guys, there's going to be a pandemic next year, one in a hundred years, never before seen. It's going to be called COVID and everyone's going to be locked down. Woolies is not going to be worth this amount of money or it's going to be worth more. Everyone will look at you and think, what the heck is this person on? And so that's the reality. The reality is that investing that way and trying to be very scientific is easy to break. And so I see with a lot of investors, they understand once again how valuation works. But over time, as they progress in their career, it gets simpler and simpler and simpler and simpler to a point where it's like, is this company going to be bigger? And all they're trying to do is trying to kind of like make sure they don't get sucked up in hope to this point, but also make sure they don't miss out on a really good company. It's like the extremes of either side, not really trying to be specifically correct, but generally right. And a great example of this in Australia is a guy called Andrew Page, who founded uh, strawman.com. Yeah, we had him on the podcast. Yeah. Andrew's a dear friend. He, um, I still think he's one of Australia's best investors, like no doubt. And he would tell you that he doesn't do like complicated mathematics. It's like, how much profit do I think I can get to in like three years from now, roughly speaking? Okay, sounds pretty good. And then he goes and does all the other qualitative stuff like understanding people, understanding processes. And this is some of the stuff you dive into a lot deeper in the Value Investor Program. Yeah, if you want to learn more, like go and check out our Value Investor Program. It's $499 to get access to it. But most people who start it don't finish it because it's so comprehensive. But if you want the answers to all of this stuff, if you want the answers, it is there. It's like 100 hours of content in there. It's everything you need to know. And it's all Australian focused. So it's not like all of those like New York University stuff, which is fantastic, but it's all Australian focused. And then there's also our investors podcast. We get a lot of questions, Kate, about like, I want to know this, this and this. And we have to think as a team, it's probably better answered on the investors podcast, which is the next level up. So go and check that out if you want to go over there. Like if you want to talk about deeper 
investing, go check that out. But that said, like you can still learn a lot here. Yeah. Now, the third thing I reckon is a quality that everybody listening should be thinking about, even if they're going to apply for a new job, is yes, properly absolutely. assessing like the business's strategy and going, how does this business make money? And most simply, the way I think about it is, can I explain to my friend who is not interested in investing, is never going to invest, what the company does and how it makes money in a way that they understand? That's perfect. I think that's the best way to learn is like, how does the company make money? And then if I was going to take it one step further for you, Kate, I'd say, not only does how does the company make money, but how could it go wrong? So a lot of people go to that first point. They're like, yeah, you should check it out. It does like batteries and like renewable energy. And it's like this new technology is going to take over the world. And then, then you're like, oh, okay. Does it make any sales? Like, does it, is it like a whatever, a business? Yeah. And like, oh no, it's not yet in the future. That would tell you that there's a big shining glaring risk there that it never actually starts selling anything. And that is all too often the case when new investors come to it. They, you've probably heard this, one of your friends come up to you and say, oh yeah, Dogecoin or crypto or gold or... Not recently, actually. Not recently, yeah. It's funny that, Kate. Um, but like, oh, this tech stock or that resources company, this, you know, does gold mining or whatever. But then they can't explain the risk. So what I would say is do that research and you can do it so simply. Just read the annual report that like you said. You can read all the stuff except for the technical stuff. Just read the chairman's letter or the chairperson's letter or the CEO's message in the annual report on their website and then just understand what they do. And do you like it? Oh, cool. Maybe go and read the competitors one as well. They take you five minutes. And then I would just strongly encourage you, if you do get to that point, to then go, oh, okay, so how could it go wrong? And it's just like inverting. It's like, oh, well, they, it's Woolworths. They, um, you know, they sell groceries. Oh, but Coles is a strong competitor. So is Aldi. And so you just prepare yourself to like invert and you flex that muscle in your head of like what could go wrong. Think yeah. upside and downside. And even instead of just looking at why do com- customers like this company, why don't customers like the company? Why do some choose to go to a competitor or what would make them leave? Yeah, absolutely. And if uh, what I find, Kate, what happens is when you, even professional analysts, when you do this to them, you say to them, okay, great, yeah, you like Woolworths. But what about Coles? And they'll, they'll start researching Coles and they'll go, <gasps> and then they'll just be frozen. They won't know. Oh, is it a good buy? Is it bad? Because in our heads, when in the first three years of investing, you don't actually develop this knowledge of, okay, I've got disconfirming evidence, but I've also got confirming evidence. How do I weight the evidence? And really the only way, and this is why I say it's like a three-year apprenticeship in investing, is that the only way to truly know and to give yourself the confidence is to try it and because you, you develop pattern recognition. Oh, in the past when I'd invested at this time, this went wrong. Or in the past when I did this, this happened. And you start to develop that habit and then obviously you can just follow other great investors. Yeah, and I think if you're interested in this a bit more, Vishal had a great list of different questions to sort of test yourself how much do you understand the business and how well can you explain it and some good things to work through and write down. We're big fans of writing this stuff down, especially as you're learning because even if you make a wrong call, it might have felt like the right call at the time. You can go back and read through everything that went through your thought process. What did you look at? What resources did you check? What sort of influenced you to buy that company? And then you can kind of learn from that and learn to improve your decision-making process when it comes to how you invest. Absolutely. This is the thing. A lot of people when they invest, and Safar's got some great kind of like questions there to prompt you, but a lot of people when they invest, they one, don't write things down, but two, they tend to be right for the wrong reasons. 
So what I mean by that is some people think, oh, stock price has gone up. Good. I was correct. But it could have gone up for reasons that were completely unrelated to whatever you thought it was. Like during COVID, everyone was like, oh, look, Zoom, like the company that creates the, the meeting software, Zoom went up like three times. And they're like, oh, look, I'm a genius. Right? But then Zoom fell the next year. So if you were a long-term investor looking at like five years out in the future, what you would have been forecasting was not correct. It was just purely because of COVID. And so by writing things down, you can realize you can actually assess, uh, I guess, the return from your predictions. Annie Duke, the book that you introduced me to, How to Decide, talks about resulting, which is the idea of um, you judge the quality of a decision based on the outcome when it could have had nothing to do with your decision. It could be something completely outside of that, yet you still had a good outcome. Mm, and we often learn the wrong lessons because we go, we made a good decision because we got a good outcome, but we might have had a very poor decision-making process. And so this often happens if one person makes an investment decision based off something they found on the internet and it went well the first time, well, then it must work every other time. And that can often lead people to losing quite a bit of money. Well, that's it. And that's how um, a lot of people end up following like cryptocurrencies over the past five years because it's gone up. Mm. And someone said on a, some forum that this is it's gone up for this reason. It sounds smart and they do it again. Oh, they're really smart. And so at the end of the day, like it's being like really calculated and being considered and writing down your thoughts because then you can just reflect and you'll get better and better and better over time. All good investors that I've come across are also good writers. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. <laughs> there you go. Writing is an important skill. It ought to clarifies your thoughts. Yep. All right. The fourth quality is comparing effectively. Expectations versus fundamentals. Yeah. Do you want to have a stab at what that means? What we expect the company will do versus what the company's actually doing. Yeah. So Michael Melbourson wrote the book called Expectations Investing. So this is the idea. So of course he wrote this in his 10 things. But, um, <laughs> but the idea is that like, when we are doing our analysis as investors, let's say, for example, that um, a company, we see a company has got profits, it's got all that sort of stuff, it's got all the good stuff, and we think, okay, I'm going to do a valuation of this. And what we do is we put it into our complicated model, and we might say, okay, the current share price is $10, but my valuation model says it's worth $15. There's a $5 difference. Now, what happens is most of the time, that's how valuation is done. Here's what it is today. And here's where I think it can get to in the future because I think it's worth this, right? In this strategy, using this strategy, what you can do is you can reverse that. You can say, well, the share price is $10 today. Now, if I make my model equal $10, what inputs go back into that to make it $10? Does that make sense? So your reverse, this is what we call reverse engineering. So instead of making it some number in the sky, you just say, I'm going to make it equal whatever the stock price is because that will tell me what investors expect from the company. So then you can basically say, is that reasonable? And so, for example, some analyst might come out and say, I think it's going to grow at 20% per year, therefore it's undervalued. Another investor might come across and say, well, according to the market, it's going to grow at 10%. So do I think it can grow faster than that? Yes. Okay, it's undervalued. So it's not necessarily trying to pick the number. It's just trying to say, is it reasonable? And that's, I think, a much better framework. And the book Expectations Investing deals with this in great detail. Raymond Jang, who's a former analyst at Rask, it was, I think it was his like, favorite book on investing. So um, yeah, it's a good read. Uh, you can pick it up. 
uh, you'll know it's got the blue cover. And that's probably something listeners have come across a lot if they're listening to different finance podcasts or listening to things on the news is analysts will say, oh, that company's so overvalued or it's, oh, it's really undervalued, it's a good buy. And it's hard to know what that means. And especially if two so-called experts are coming on the news and one's, they're talking about the exact same company, they've got the same facts in front of them and one's like, oh, it's really overvalued and one's, it's really undervalued. Like, how do you have such a difference? Well, you basically have to know what inputs they use, right? And this is my point. So like, you can, you know, that old garbage in, garbage out idea where you put like just ridiculous numbers into your model, you're going to get ridiculous numbers coming out the other end. So a lot of analysts do that to fit their narrative. That's why I never, ever, I never, ever trust analyst valuations, ever, never. Even your own? I trust my own because I know what went into it, right? Okay. Yeah. And I understand the business and I trust my teams because I could look at their model. Okay. So you would trust an analyst valuation if they gave you all of their inputs? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Because then I would be saying to myself, well, that sounds reasonable. Well, that doesn't sound reasonable. But what happens, you see, Kay, our industry can be quite conflicted is when you get those big, beautiful PDF reports from those analysts on the internet, what happens is... In those businesses, there's two sides of their business. There's the analyst side of the business and then there's the investment banking side. So the investment bankers make money when they can do a deal like a merger or an acquisition or a takeover or something. Now, this isn't supposed to happen, all this sort of stuff. We know it's not supposed to happen. But what happens is the analysts get influenced. The analysts get influenced to write good things and to do good valuations. Why? So then the investment banking team can go to the CEO and say, we think your stock's undervalued. You should go and do this deal or you should use us and we'll try and do a capital raising or something like this. And that's where it gets really conflicted. So a lot of those, yeah, I just wouldn't trust them. But what I would trust is the analyst reports. So like actually just reading and I use them not necessarily to, for like a decision-making process, but actually just to, for a learning process. Like, oh, the analyst went and did a site tour and here's what they saw. Yeah, and that's their thought process as well. Yeah. And even if you're reading fund manager reports, they're all written from a certain angle. You can learn a lot yeah. even if you're just aware that there's going to be a layer of bias when you listen to it and will read it. All right. The fifth one is think probabilistically. Yes. There are a few sure things. Yes. Do you know who says that a lot? Steve Johnson from Forager just celebrated huh. their 10 years. Wow, that's a bit of a mouthful to say a lot. Think probabilistically. Yeah, I've got a quote from Michael that I wanted to read out, which relates to what we were talking about before with Annie Duke and her book, How to Decide. He said, when probability plays a large role in outcomes, it makes sense to focus on the process of making decisions rather than the outcome alone. The reason is that a particular outcome may not be indicative of the quality of the decision. Good decisions sometimes result in bad outcomes and bad decisions lead to good outcomes. Over the long haul, however, good decisions portend, now that's not a word I use a lot, favourable outcomes, even if you'll be wrong from time to time. Time horizon and sample size are also vital considerations. Learning to focus on process and accept the periodic and inevitable bad outcomes is crucial. Yeah. And this comes back to that point about valuation being in a science versus art, you know, with more than science, I'd say. Um, like the art informs the science. So, yeah, a lot of people, like it's, either, it's black or it's white. And by that I mean like if you've heard a lot of people talk about like lithium companies over the past two years, it's either buy lithium or you're my enemy, like honestly, or Bitcoin. It's either Bitcoin is the future or you're the devil. And that's just craziness all around. And that's because people haven't 
thought to themselves, well, there's basically like an infinite number of possibilities. And then so it's your job as an investor to determine what is most likely, what is next most likely, what is the next most likely after that. That's why in our valuations, we tend to do three scenarios. So we tend to say, well, there's going to be this really good outcome if this happens, then the next best thing is this, and then the worst thing is this. So we call that like a a bull case, a base case, and a bear case. There There are many ways to do it. But for most of us, we think in terms of like black and white. Whenever I make a decision as a business owner these days, I don't think this is going to happen or it's not going to happen. I think this could happen, but what are the consequences if that happens? And what's the likelihood of those consequences? And you can start to think, well, you know, to be honest, there's no such thing as like a perfect decision. Because if there was, you would make that decision every time and everyone would be doing it. Mm. There is only really like hard choices. Yeah. And really, is your decision going to land on option A or option B. It's going to come out somewhere in the whole spectrum between A and B. There's going to be A2, A3, A4, and your decision result will land somewhere in there. Yeah. So think about it like this, right? For example, when you do a modeling thing, when you're looking at a company, you one of the things you'll definitely need is the sales of the company or like the revenue. So that will depend on how many customers they have, how many products they sell at what price. So there's already like three major considerations. Then the other thing you definitely need is you'll need the profit margins because the profit margins let you get to cash flow. So what is the profit margin going to be? Well, that will depend on your costs. It will depend on things like your staff and inflation and those types of things. Okay, so we've got like a dozen more things to consider there. And then we've got to consider things like where management come into it. Like who knows what management are going to do? Honestly, some, some of them are just nuts. So even just to get to one very simple thing, which is profit, there's like, hundreds if not thousands of different variables that could factor into that so if you think there's only it is or it isn't like honestly like there's a whole spectrum so you've just got to think in terms of those buckets but that's number five thinking probabilistically and something interesting he mentioned was time horizon because you might make a decision you've written down your process and you're going i'm going to invest in this company for 10 years i believe in i've done all my research and one year might have gone by and the company might be really struggling and the company's down 30 percent and if you're only looking at, well, in 12 months, it's down 30%, therefore my decision's wrong. Like yeah. you could be wrong over 12 months, but right over 10 years. I think you've said that before too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. And this is the thing. In investing, it's very much one of those industries where people are hypersensitive to the near term. So like that quote, I don't know if it's from Miller or Bill Gates or who knows who said this, someone smarter than me. One said that people overestimate what they can achieve in one year and underestimate what they can achieve in five and it's even more so with investing. It's very easy because there's money involved, which is an emotional thing, and there's uncertainty. It's like the two multiply together to give you the maximum amount of like sensitivity to the near term. And so what happens is Microsoft doesn't meet its sales forecast. Everyone freaks out, the stock falls. But that you could still be right in the long term. You could still be right in five years. Yeah. It's just in the short term, things are going to be painful. And that's that's literally what investing is. It's basically taking the uncertainty in the short term for the long-term payoff. Yeah, and it's hard to make forecasts. It's a lot to ask for a company to make perfect forecasts. Yeah, and when they do, you should run away because I've seen them do it and it has. I don't think it's ever worked out well. Yeah. <laughs> All right, the sixth quality of great investors is update your views effectively. Beliefs are hypotheses to be tested, not treasures to be protected. I feel like that's a good saying. Absolutely. (laughs) The key thing that happens when in investing is that a lot of people tend to think that their idea is the only idea that matters. 
And as we've just discovered, thinking probabilistically, there are a range of outcomes. So the longer you invest, typically the more humble you get because you get proven wrong time and time and time and time again. And at the end of the day, in scientific procedures, we know that there is no one source of truth. We just know what is kind of like the null hypothesis, right? And so we're trying to actively test things wrong. So one of the best things you can do as an investor to update your views and make sure you're trying to get towards the truth is to make sure that you are challenging yourself. And the way you do that is just take the opposite side of the debate. I think Telstra is a great business and I'm going to invest in it because of X, Y, and Z. Okay, so I think Telstra is a bad business and I'm going to avoid it or sell it because of X, Y, and Z. And just see what happens and try and balance those competing views. Yeah, it's like pretending you're back in high school debate where you had to really analyse both sides so you could rebut each other's arguments. Absolutely. Like Charlie Munger was a lawyer before he was an investor and now sidekick of Warren Buffett, 98 years old. His legal training is clear when he invests. He goes firstly to, well, what could go wrong? And the book Value Investing by Sonkin and a few other writers, and Greenwald, I think it was, basically showed that all of the great investors have a common thread. They focus on what could go wrong first and then the upside. Whereas most people that are like, I just use Bitcoin because it's an extreme example and it's in the zeitgeist, which is like people who are Bitcoin fanatics or they're not. And so the Bitcoin fanatics probably haven't truly thought about what could go wrong. They're just kind of like blindsided by the upside. And so that's why I kind of like anyone that comes to me and they're like, oh, this great idea, blah, blah, blah. It's clear to me they haven't thought truly about the risks. They haven't been honest and they haven't updated their views as new information has come to hand. Final thing I'll say, Kate, is that, yeah, the Hans Rosling quote, yeah, and this just gets anyone in any situation, doesn't matter if it's finance or not, is what piece of information would make you change your mind? And if you ask someone that about their investing, what piece of information would make you change your mind about investing in this company? Because then it allows you, it forces them to think about it. And you're not challenging them. You're just saying, what would it be? It's a reasonable question. So it's a hard one to answer, but it's a good question. I think it is hard to change your mind. Even a lot of people struggle, even when they're presented with so much evidence that they have the correct, incorrect viewpoint on a, a company or something like that. They struggle to change their approach, especially this comes in if someone has invested a significant amount of their money in the company. We've seen this time and time again, whether it's in the internet, in articles, if someone has invested a significant portion of their net worth in a company and someone tells them, here's all these reasons why this company isn't going to do well, there's often quite strong reactions to that. And it's very hard for them to see any other side. Absolutely. That's why I love the Hans Rosling quote, because you're not challenging them, you're just asking them to identify what could go wrong. Not you. Yeah. Yeah. Just let them figure it out and then just walk away. So I think a great exercise, if you currently own an individual company, even an ETF here, write down the reasons why you you purchase the company and why you, you like it. And maybe you've looked at some of the numbers of you read the annual report, you've talked to a customer, write all that down, but then challenge yourself to write all the reasons why the company might not do well and challenge yourself to look at some of the people online who are saying the opposite things to you about the company. And look at some of that and write down what could mean this company doesn't do well, what could mean the company doesn't meet its targets or loses some of its key people, like what could go wrong? And just write all that down and really force yourself to think about why you own it and all of that stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, great one. And that's what we call thesis creep. So it's when someone comes into an investment with a thesis or a theory about why that's a good investment. And then over time, they just slowly chip away at that until it's completely different to what they originally thought. And that, that's actually been shown, like in at least anecdotally, 
that it's not a good thing. When your thesis starts to creep is when you get things wrong. Yeah. All right. The seventh one is one that we're big fans of talking about here and is very important for all investors is being aware of your behavioral biases. There's a comment here from Safar with successful investing is 1% about what you know and what you buy and 99% about how you behave. That's just a straight like, kind of like uh, rip out, out of uh, Morgan House's book, The Psychology of Money, and some of his great works at The Motley Fool before that. But, I mean, it's true, right? Because the only thing you can really control is how you behave. A lot of people think when the stock prices go up or down, they're like, oh, you know, it's because I'm a good investor or... You know, it goes in, oh, I'm a terrible investor. Mm, I made a mistake. I did something wrong. And that's all your behavior. You have no control over it. They also think that people also think that they can will a stock price higher. This is something that I learned pretty early. It's like people think that just by hoping (laughs) and just by telling people about it that they can go higher. And at the end of the day, the stock price owes you nothing. Hope is not an effective investment strategy. No, that's it. So if you can just put that aside and just remember that really all that matters over the long term is how well the business performs. Yeah. Times when it doesn't, but that's all that matters. And a lot of these biases, you're going to be faced with your whole, the rest of your life. Like every time you're investing, you'll you'll see your f- things you buy go down and you'll feel like a little pang of, oh, did I make the right call? But you can minimize these behavioral biases that crop up by doing things like removing the brokerage apps from your phone, not checking every single piece of financial news on any news site, no matter how reputable not talking about it all the time, especially if it's stressing you out. Absolutely. And it doesn't matter. You don't have to be a share investor. You can be an ETF investor. In fact, being an ETF investor and not having any understanding of your behavior, like that's just, it's going to be bad. It's mm. probably not going to be as bad as if you're a stock investor, but it will still be tragic. Yeah. So you've got to understand that no matter what type of investor you are, no matter how, no matter where you are in your journey, you've got to be focusing on like, how do I improve as a person and cope better with stress and learn and Keep growing. Yeah. That's it. Um, we've, got, we've done some great stuff on this though, Kate. Yeah, and I just think getting to know yourself better, we've got some great conversations on behavioral biases and investing. I'll link them in the show notes. But even Evan Lucas's book, Mind Over Money, Morgan's Psychology of Money, The Behavioral Investor by Daniel Crosby, they're all great resources. Even Annie Duke's book, How to Decide, to get you to know yourself better because that plays so much into how you invest mm-hmm. and whether you're going to be successful or not. Yep, 100%. All right, the eighth one. We're nearly there, Owen. Yes, we're almost there. We're going to be great investors the time we get through this list. (laughs) (laughs) Is knowing the difference between information and influence. Yes. Well, I mean, the ultimate thing is, right, like we've got to separate what is fact and what is fiction in a lot of these investments. And Unfortunately, when you are a public company investor, meaning you're investing in shares on the stock exchange, it's a public company, what you don't know is you don't know all the intimate details of what's happening. So a lot of the time what you do is you end up jumping at shadows. You maybe think, oh, has this other person got information that I don't have? Or is there something wrong? It feels like there's something bubbling, even though there might be no basis for that. So the idea is just always trying to, what we say is create a mosaic. So the idea of investing is that imagine you have a picture of something and it's a big tile or something and someone smashes it in front of you. Your job as an investor is to put the pieces back together and just decide what that picture is as quickly as possible. So it might be a picture of an elephant, a carrot, whatever, right? Your job is to do that as quickly as possible. 
And on that journey, other people will try and say, no, this goes here, this goes here, this goes here. And sometimes you're going to get things wrong. Things are going to go in the wrong area. But basically what we're trying to do is put that picture together using the facts or the information that we have, using our mental models. And that's why when I do it, I always try and find not only that disconfirming evidence, which you talked to before, but I also try and find it and analyze it from different perspectives. If you notice, okay, in the original paper from Michael here, he referenced a book from Michael Porter. And this was this the original work by Michael Porter is on competitive advantage. These are you know the classic five forces analysis yeah, that you do in your basic uni degree. Yes, you know, five <laughs> forces where you've got like supplier power, you've got customer power, you've got all that stuff. You analyze a business from five different perspectives is the basis of it. But he's the original king of competitive advantages and understanding them from both a company perspective, but also from an investing perspective. And it's about trying to get different perspectives. So you can, you're not going to know for sure but at least you get perspective so you can understand the lay of the land quicker. Yeah, and it can be hard for new investors because sometimes the loudest voices in the rooms can be wrong. And sometimes the biggest news organisations are saying one thing and that might not end up being true or that might be a really bad decision if you just follow that without doing your own research. So sometimes you have to make a decision that might feel a little bit uncomfortable because everyone else is saying one thing and you're doing another thing, but it might be better long-term. Well, if everyone does the average thing, we'll get average results. And I guess the old saying is like, typically like there are two types of people. There are people that like change and there are people resistive to change, but typically change is when you get the most growth. So when something changes is when you'll get growth because you get people that exploit that change. And um, in the market, it's no different because you don't typically get an opportunity to buy the best shares in the best company unless there's something wrong, right? Like no one's going to come up to you and go, oh, here, Kate, here's the best company in the world and you'll get it for half price. Now they'll come up to you and they'll go, Kate, take these shares from me. The thing's about to blow up. Here, take it, take it, take it. Yeah, all this stuff has gone wrong at once. Have you seen the news? Like this is what's going on. Please take it. And that's when you're like, oh, I don't think that news is as bad as what you're saying. I'll take it. And that is the reality of what long-term investing individual shares is about. That's what value investing is. It's this idea of, oh, everyone's saying it's bad. Well, maybe I should buy it. And that's what I think right now. And I think we've spoken about this previously about 2023, by all accounts, is meant to be a pretty hard year, higher interest rates. It's pretty scary out there at the moment. So what do we think? Well, maybe we should buy some stuff. While everyone's panicked and selling, we'll go, oh, maybe we'll buy some stuff. Yeah. And some of the experts that made a significant amount of money getting in and buying a company when it had fallen dramatically, in hindsight, they look really clever. But at the time, it would have been a very hard decision to make buying into a company that might not have lived to the next year. And that's it. And that's why you've just got to do your research and typically you've got to continually do it. You can't just go and do it when there's a crisis because you'll be late. You've got to just keep doing it. You've got to keep finding these businesses, putting them on your watch list and just waiting for that day when everyone says things, the world's falling apart, but you've done your research and you go, well, maybe they are right, but based on all my research, they're probably wrong. So that's that probabilistically, they're probably wrong. I could be wrong, but they're, you know, well, they could be wrong but they're probably wrong. And that's your opportunity. Yeah. The ninth one is something we don't talk about as often, but it's size your positions appropriately. And just from what I was reading and the way I thought about that is what percentage of my portfolio am I allocating to each investment? And the way I do that can have a big impact on my returns. If I put all of my money into one single company that I had a really good feeling about and it went really well, that could make a huge difference, but it could also go very wrong and I could end up back 
with a very small amount of money. And so mm. I'm thinking about diversification, but then not if I buy a hundred different companies, I can end up diversifying so much that I have very average returns or I even have worse returns than just buying an ETF. If you think about it, right, most people who like start a business basically have 100% of their wealth in that business. So it's all or nothing. So like someone that runs the local hardware or, you know, a PT or something like that, they put all their money into the business. How many times have you heard them say that? The difference between that and putting all your money in one share is you control that private business. So that's the difference. Yeah, and there's different levers you can pull. You could make some staff redundant. You could change product lines. You could Whatever start you need to a do. Site, an online version of the business. Absolutely, right? Uh, you could refuse to take a wage for a while. But when it's a public company, like when you don't have any control, you're just doing whatever the management team tells you to do or the, whatever they're doing, you don't have any control. So my point is like that is just crazy. So from one end of the spectrum – if you think about like your investment returns as a spectrum, um, you think of the whole stock market that you could possibly invest in, you're going to get some that go to zero, very few, and then you're going to get some that do really well. If you just try and pick one of those, it could be the one that does zero. It could be the one that goes up. But it doesn't necessarily mean that your process is that great. So what I would say is like, we just talk about this just to bring it back to basics. I believe, and this is even here in the office with investors with three times as much experience as me, I'm slowly winning them over that they don't have to just stick with one way of doing things all the time. You can do that core and satellite approach where you have the core, which is low cost, it's outsourced, it's really easy to manage, and then you can buy the individual stocks. And within that stock portfolio, you can do all, whatever you want. You can have 50 different companies, you can have 20. But I probably wouldn't say don't have just, we could start with one, but maybe yeah. don't put all in one. Yeah, and you can start with a, a smaller position in one company and as you research it and as yeah. it meets your expectations and as you find out more about the team, you could add to that position and grow the overall percentage of your portfolio allocated to that company. So you don't have to start all guns blazing, put 20% of your portfolio into one company. You could start with just a couple of percent of the portfolio in that company. If I was starting out today, I'd start with ETFs. I'd build out my core, maybe have five ETFs, five to seven, somewhere around there, ETFs. I would do that for the first couple of years until I got the ropes, until my portfolio was a bit more established. And then I might go, well, I want to buy one individual share. Now, you might bring that forward. You might say, I'll buy one ETF and one share at the same time because I want to learn about both. But then once you get to a point, you might say, at the end of the day, you know, 80% of my money is in the ETFs. And then the other 20% is spread across 10 or 20 over time. Yeah. It's not like a hard and fast rule. I think the mathematics around what is an efficient portfolio and what isn't is quite complicated in my opinion and it's best reserved for academics. Lucky number 10, Kate. The final one is something that we both love to do and we talk about this a bit. It is read and keep an open mind. And something Michael said in his paper was that good readers tend to take on material across a wide spectrum of disciplines. So not just reading in business and finance, he says, expand the scope of the things you read into new domains or fields. Follow your curiosity because it's hard to know when an idea could come from a very different field and that could come in handy. Yeah. Well, what was the first thing Morgan said when we were interviewing him? Morgan House on this podcast, he said, he started talking about plants. I don't know if you remember this. He's like, I've been reading a book about plants and why some plants grow better out in the open and others that are in the shade don't grow as well. And he's saying, maybe the analogy is like, it's like, if you build the portfolio correctly and it can grow to the sky or if it's hidden and it hasn't got the resilience. And, it, you know, 
all these types of things. Yes, he's a good example of someone who reads very widely and brings in a whole heap of different examples from different fields into his work. And I think, yeah, there is... Once you're when you're getting started, there's the the want to read every single finance and investing book under the sun, and then you can get very focused on the numbers and the the fundamentals, and forget to look at okay, businesses are based off ideas, and ideas can come from a very wide source. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the thing, right? We talk about this a lot when we talk about where you get your information is probably just as important as what you're reading that moment, because where you get it depend that that's the credibility of the source. And then you've got the quality of the content that comes through. And that's why we say, you know, you should get multiple different perspectives. You should read things that aren't necessarily in your following if you're on social media. I would add to this, like reading is by far probably the most important, but I'd also say like listening and watching is also really important. You can learn a lot just by watching the CEO or the board of directors in an AGM or see how they get interviewed and what they say and how passionate they are. These are all soft skills that, matters, that matter a lot as well. Even podcasts like this, I've learned since 2017, the amount that I've learned through podcasts about investing, not so much about the application, which is where more books come in for me. Man, like I've learned so much. Even from Michael Melbourson, listening to podcasts that he's done in the past where he's been interviewed, incredible. And so the idea is just to keep an open mind, keep learning, keep growing. Even Warren Buffett, what is he, 92 now or so? Charlie Munger, 98. They still do their annual meetings, six-hour live stream that they put on. Incredible. And you can just listen to that. It's so good. But, I mean, there are so many good books. We've done many episodes on this in the past. Just keep reading. Keep reading annual reports. Keep reading industry reports. You never know where an idea will come to you. Yeah, and I think if you want to challenge yourself this month, find a nonfiction book in an area that you're not really familiar with, whether it's AI technology or how to build a house, I don't know, but find a book in a different area and challenge yourself to get through it and write down like your key insights because that will challenge you as you're working through the book to go, what is the most valuable part of the book? What can I take away from this? What can I share? And so I think writing something down once you finish is a good exercise. Absolutely. We use Notion at work. You can use anything, Google document, where you just store your thoughts and maybe you can categorize your thoughts into something that's kind of like, oh, maybe I'll use that later on. Maybe that one's about science or this one's about writing or this one's about investing, whatever it may be. But Kate, we've gone through 10 things. So just to recap, number one, be numerate, understand accounting. You don't need to have a degree in it, but there are many great courses online you can take, as well as YouTube, it's a free resource. Numero two was understand value. I mentioned that it's very important to at least kind of have a basis and it's about projecting forward, but it's not everything. We do have our Value Investors Program or even the Investors Podcast if you want to learn more. Number three was properly assess the strategy. And it's basically like, how does the business make money? Kate said, you know, describe it to a friend. Also add a risk in there. What could go wrong? Number four, compare effectively. This is about what is the company, not just is it, what is it worth, but how does it kind of like fare against its long-term potential? A lot of people like buy Tesla, for example, and they might buy Tesla and see that it's already a trillion-dollar company. Can it get bigger than that? Well, you've got to make that decision. That's the expectations versus reality. Number five, think probabilistically. <laughs> we had a few tongue twisters today, but that's one. And this is just about thinking nothing is set in stone. So make sure you know what the bull, bear, and base case are, if you like update your views, challenge yourself, that's number six, challenge yourself to make sure that you are continuously learning, continuously evolving. Number seven, which is Kate and I's favorite, beware of those behavioral biases that creep in. You get a lot of them, whether it's like confirmation bias, a friend says the same thing, therefore it must be true. 
Maybe that's not the case. I find like anchoring bias. Oh, to a price? Yes. Like or $10 a share or even something? in real life, like I paid $4 for coffee for a long period of time. And so I'm anchored to that number. Even though I know wages have gone up, goods have gone up. A few years later, I'm still like, oh, $5, that's so expensive because I'm anchored to that $4 price. And people do that with share prices as well. They're like, I knew, I bought that stock when it was $30. How on earth can I buy it at $50? Yeah, CSL was only, you know, $100 (laughs) when I was around and now it's $300. Yeah. Number eight, Know the difference between information and influence. People will disagree with you in investing. And you know what? You should hear what they have to say because they might be correct. But if they are not correct, let them disagree because it means you get a better price. Strengthen your case as well. Absolutely. Because if everyone disagrees, then, you know. Number nine, size your positions appropriately. We mentioned how you can do both. You don't have to go all or nothing. Please do not do that. We suggest as a kind of a business rule is just kind of like start slow. And build that diversified base first and then branch out as you learn more. It's a three-year apprenticeship. Number 10 is read and keep an open mind. Katie's the best at sharing podcasts and book recommendations, and that's why we have them on the show. So we've done a few of those in the past. Just scroll back through the catalog and look at some of the book suggestions. We've also had Morgan on the show. We've had Daniel Crosby. We've had so many great behavioral-focused folks, including Evan Lucas. There's a lot there, Owen. So I think just to wrap it up, if you want to read – the paper or the shorter article version of the paper, which I've put them in the show notes, as well as some of the books and podcasts we've mentioned, if this is something that interests you. And if you want to get really nerdy, I could, saw that Michael has written a lot of very long papers. I, I clicked a few of them open and uh, they're definitely worlds away from what I understand, but could be fun if you're looking for some bedtime reading. Yep, absolutely. There'll be heaps of links in the show notes. Go and check out the Australian Investors Podcast or the Value Investor Program. We also have a valuation course that's on the website that's not quite the Value Investor Program level, but if you want to learn uh, directly from me and get all my templates for valuation and so forth, you can get that on the Rusk Education website. Kate, as always, thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. We hope you learned something new and were able to take one thing away from this episode. If you're keen to learn more, head on over to Rask Education and take one of our free money and investing courses. You could even become a Rask Core member for less than your Netflix subscription each month. And don't forget to subscribe for new episodes in your inbox every week. Plus, if you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and send any questions our way via the link in the description. And before we go on, did this podcast contain personal financial advice just for me? Absolutely not, Kate. Our podcast actually contains general financial information only. What that means is the information does not take into account your financial needs, goals, objectives, or even your situation. So because of that, it's important that you consider if the information is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on it. If that all sounds a bit confusing or you're still working out what your needs are, it's a great idea to consult a licensed and trusted financial planner. And don't forget to do your own research. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice.
This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.